As we begin uh, chapter 2 of John's letter, I want to remind ourselves of a few things. First, we're going to read John chap- 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. So if you can or if you are willing, would you please stand with me as we read God's Word? Little ones. My little children, John says. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in Him, but whoever keeps His word in Him. Truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way which He walked. Father, would You bore this beyond our brains into our hearts and souls, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you grab a seat? As we begin chapter 2, I want to remind us of a couple of things that I think will help us as we're considering what John is saying in this letter. The first one is that the chapter and verse divisions were not in the original letter. You know, obviously, that in Scripture there weren't chapter and verse divisions there. They were done in the uh, 13th century by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Some of you may remember him. I say that to remind us that as we're reading 1 John, it's a letter, and reading it as, help, as such helps us grasp it as a whole. Do any of you remember getting letters? I mean, real letters, like not texts? Uh, you still write them? That a girl, send me one. We, we, I remember being in Chicago, and I couldn't wait to go to the mailbox because there might be a letter there, and, and it was as if we read every word, but you didn't uh, diagram every sentence and, and, and think through, well, what did they mean by that? We read it as a whole as an expression of a friend or a loved one, and I want to encourage you, it doesn't take very long, read this letter as a whole unit and watch what it does to your comprehension. Second one is John is teaching what he's been taught by Jesus. He's addressing things that are being taught that aren't true about Jesus. People in the end of the first century are saying things about Jesus that weren't true, they weren't accurate, and John is saying, listen, I got to tell you something. I walked with him. I spent time with him. This is the real Jesus. This is who he is. Even as early as the first century, Jesus was being redefined or reinterpreted. And I want to say that all that is called Christianity is not. We live in a culture that kind of makes Jesus the way we want. I was reading a thing on Facebook this week, and it said, and it's various people saying things, well, my God is this, and my God isn't this, and my God is this way, and the overwhelming impression was that we pick and choose our God and we form him into what we want to worship. Sometimes the word orthodoxy gets a bad rap. It's as if it's 
dogmatism or legalism or something, but I got to tell you, there is truth and there is error. And to suggest that all truths are the same and there is no error opens us up to what? Error, not truth. The last thing I want to remind us is orthodoxy can't be divorced from orthopraxy. That statement is taken from the book called Evangelical Convictions, and it's from the book written around our doctrinal statement. All it means is this. We can't divorce what we do from what we say we believe. They go hand in hand. John is saying is that what we believe must be lived out. In fact, he's saying more than that. He's saying it will leak out. <laughs> it's unavoidable. My decisions today are the best indicator of what I really believe at this moment. My decisions today about how I will live my life are really the best indicator of what I believe at this moment. I could have woken up this morning and said, oh, it's raining. My day is ruined. What is that really saying? The weather's bigger than God. Oh, my parents are ruining my life. It's hard for my parents. They're not here anymore. I just can't go on. My boyfriend broke up with me. I'm not, I'm not minimizing these things. Well, kind of. But when we say those things dictate the way I will choose to live today, what I'm saying is those things have more power in my life than God. And my belief system is reflected in my response. Does that make sense? So what I really believe about God and what he said and was, this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. When I believe that, what happens to the other stuff? It's minimized, right? So my choices on how I will respond and live today are dependent on really, and they declare what I believe today. John, in this letter, is addressing those who have been told things about Jesus that aren't accurate. And some of those people discontinued walking in the light, and they, and, they, and they quit fellowshipping with those who are in the light, evidently contentiously so. There was this, this error from what scholars are telling us and what we can read into the letter here is that there was this air of superiority. They were better. Somehow they had reached a place where they didn't sin. Or their sin wasn't as bad as these other people's sins. They reached a place of sinless perfection, so they didn't need anybody else or anything else. And ultimately, that belies the truth. Sinlessness always means selflessness, doesn't it? So as we slide into chapter 2, it's an extension of what Paul has already said. But he's telling his listeners, his spiritual children, hey, listen, kids, it isn't hearsay or some man-made philosophy. This is the straight good about who Jesus is. I knew him, I walked with him, I lived with him. I was talking with a couple this week who was spending a bunch of time going through the Bible together for the first time. Their <coughs> circumstances have changed and they do a lot of driving, so they're listening to the Bible and they said this to me. We are shocked at how much of what we believed is not based on the Bible. 
it's based on what we heard or thought, but we're finding that, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, we didn't know that was in there. <laughs> they're not reading God's Word, they're listening to God's Word. And what John is saying is, listen, no matter what you've heard about Jesus, and no matter what anybody says, i got to tell you, this is who he is. He's life and life. And there's no place else you can find those. He is those things. So that's the only place you'll find them. His life sheds light on our lives. And we can and must choose to walk in the light, but if we choose not to, we miss out on all that is offered. And then he starts in chapter 2, my little children, I write these things to you so that you don't sin. That's not a guilt trip. <laughs> what he's saying is, I'm writing these things to you about light and life so that you don't have to wallow in sin. You don't have to walk in sin and, and you don't have to then live in its misery. Do you know that sin is costly? Now, the scripture says it's fun for a season, but man, there's a price to pay. And what John is saying is, listen, kids, when I talk to my kids or grandkids, I, I, I sometimes say, hey, kids, come here. Hey, kids, I want to tell you something. And you know what sometimes they say? I really don't want to listen, Grandpa, but I have all the wisdom in the world. If you will just listen to me. <laughs> That's not going to end well later, is it? Mm -mm. <laughs> Did you see that? The other day, one of them touched the fireplace and burned her finger, and it was like, hey, the fireplace burned my finger. And I'm like, duh. How many times have you been told? Well, it's the fireplace's fault, or it's your fault, or something. And what John is saying is, listen, kids, my spiritual kids, careful. I don't want you to have to get burnt. I don't want you to have to pay the price. He's not being legalistic. He's saying, walk in light. You'll enjoy life. But it's not going to be forced on us. And then he says this, but I don't want you to sin. But if you do, <laughs> how many of you will? How many of you have? today. <laughs> so it's this great loving statement that says, man, this is about Christ's provision and protection. It's protection from sin and provision if we do. I don't want you to sin, but if you do, you have an advocate. There is a phrase then that becomes thematic in this letter, and he says this. John says, this is how you know. This is how you know. This is how you know. It's thematic. It's like a mirror into our souls. This is how you know. For those of us who have various diagnostic things that we have to check, you know, check with our, um, our health stuff, you know, one of those, for those of you who are diabetic, you have to take that little deal and you stick your finger and you read the blood and it says uh, you're sicker than you think you are. And, and it gives you a reading and you go, that can't be true. That milkshake cannot have made that big a difference. 
But we do that in order to get an accurate reading of who we are and what's going on. And I got to tell you, what John is saying is, I'm going to give you these things. This is how you know, you know. This is how you know if you're in him. It's possible to think we're in him and not be in him. <coughs> so this is how you know. First one, this is how you know. Those who know him know who Christ is. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is more than just knowing about it, it is knowing. You have an advocate, Jesus. It's, it's being convinced, convinced in such a way that it becomes a conviction. The truth <coughs> and the absolute reality of the truth owns us and we own it. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. Amen? And those who know him know this. We have an advocate with the Father. He is one who pleads our case. What's an advocate? An attorney, one who speaks on our behalf, one who helps. He comes alongside. Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father. And I've got to tell you a story. I went to court this week. I was not in trouble. I went to court for the adoption of a little guy into a family. And what I didn't realize is there is a court advocate that asked the court to approve the adoption, right? So they're arguing the case on behalf of the family. And so they have all these things they've given to the court ahead of time, and then they interview the parents, and then they interview the rest of the kids to see if really they want this little guy or if they should legally give him as their son. And never once did the... Well, actually, she did kind of interview the boy, do you want to live with them? But she never once asked the family, is he worth adopting? What she was establishing is, are you going to adopt him based on who you are and what you're going to do for him, not on the basis of what he's going to do for you? We have an advocate with the Father that says, I represent Doug here. There's an accuser who stands before the Father and says, Doug doesn't deserve your love. There's no way he should be your son. And you know what the advocate says? What does that have to do with anything? We're not here because of Doug. We're here because of me and what I've done for him. He's your son, Father, not because of what he does and what he deserves, but because of what I've done and what it deserves. That's the point. We, those who know him know who Christ is. We have an advocate. And John is saying, listen, my dear ones, my spiritual children, I don't want you to sin, but when you do, you have an advocate with the Father. And let me tell you about this advocate. He is Jesus. Jesus is not some figment of someone's imagination. He's not some mystical or mythical being. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the guy who lived. He was born. He, he lived in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. He was the carpenter's son. He had flesh and blood. There were those who were saying at the end of the first century, well, he really wasn't born. He, really, he was a figment of imagination. He was spiritual. He couldn't take on flesh and blood. Blah, 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 blah. And what John is saying is, no, he's Jesus. He's the one who was born. He's the one who walked 
He's the one who turned the water into wine, walked on water, healed the sick, calmed the storm, demonstrated what love was. This is the one who died and was raised from the dead. Now this Jesus, this Jesus, he's the advocate. No matter what anyone else has said or says, he was and he is the real deal. So much today is these conversations, well, my God is, or I worship my God because he is. Well then, okay. But if we're trying to make God into what we want him to be, that's a little G, not a big one. But he's not just Jesus, this historical figure. He's Christ. He's Christ the righteous. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is Christ. He's the one sent to redeem and to save. I want to encourage you, now that you're reading the book of 1 John, go back and read the Gospel of John. But what was the point of John's ministry? Sounds like the British Parliament, right, Joe? John said this in John 20, 30, 31. He's giving the point of his writing. He's giving the point of his ministry. And he's giving the point of our lives. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the point of all of this. And what John is saying in his letter is, let me remind you of what I've said. Let me remind you of who he is. He is Jesus, the Christ. And if you believe that, you may find life in his name. Because he is light and life. Listen. If we don't get this, we miss everything else, and we're wasting our time. Jesus himself in the Gospel of John said this, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, some of us are sitting here today, and you know what you're thinking? Duh. Come on. I've heard that since I was born heard that in Sunday school. I've heard that. I just heard it. Tell me something I don't know. If that's our response, can I be real honest? Well, I'm going to be. Kind of scares me. That one scares me. And in all honesty, it scares me that that is my response all too often. Duh. Been there, done that. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you should take my sin. Duh. In our conservative evangelical circles, we know about him, but do we know him? What John is talking about is that this is a knowing that is beyond our intellectual responses. The reality that John is describing is not knowing about Jesus. Now listen to me. We can know about him and not be transformed by him. But we cannot know him and not be being transformed by him. There's a difference between knowing about and knowing. 
We can know all about him and not be being transformed from the inside out. But we cannot know him and not be being transformed. So the first clue, the first mirror is those who follow Jesus know him and know who he is. But they know him in a way that is beyond just knowing about. The second thing is those who know him trust what he did. He is the propitiation for our sins. We talked about this last week. He took on our sin and he died to pay for our guilt. The cross is where the justice of God is mediated. And it is the righteous wrath and justice of a God who has wrath against evil. Again, we can say, I don't like that. That's the Old Testament God. No, that's God, God. And what God does is said, I'm going to take my wrath and pour it out on my son. He bore the wrath. It wasn't just that he hung on the cross. He bore God's wrath, the wrath that I deserved. Jesus didn't just make a payment. He paid the debt in full. Jesus' death paid the price for sin, and it mediated, mitigated, turned away God's wrath. That's what the word propitiation means. We sing a song here periodically. We'll never know how much it costs to what? To see our sin upon that cross. And it's almost like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. God did that. David Jackman says this, I'm going to read it, because he says it better than I can. The glory of, of the gospel is that we have an advocate who pleads for mercy on the ground of his own righteous action when he died the death that we deserve to die. Once the penalty has been paid, there cannot be any further demand for the sinner to be punished. Did you hear that? Once the penalty has been paid, there cannot be any further demand for the sinner to be punished. God has himself met our debt. He came in person to do so. The cross is not the Father punishing an innocent third party, the Son, for our sins. It is God taking to himself in the person of the Son all the punishment that his wrath justly demands, quenching its sword, satisfying its penalty and thus atoning for our sin. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. And he goes on to say, but not only for us, but for the sins of the world. Now, John's not saying that everyone is saved. That's obvious from the letter. But he's making it clear that this propitiation is available to anyone and everyone who wants to appropriate it. Now, we can reject it. That's fine. He's not going to force it on us. The bottom line is that this is more than understanding. It's relying on. It's resting on. It's believing. It's having faith in what he has done. It's trusting him. A couple of questions. Number one, did Jesus do enough for us? What more is needed? What do we need to add what he has done for us? So why do we spend so much trying, so much time and energy trying? 
those who know God count on, trust in what he has done on our behalf. And so when the enemy of our soul says, you don't deserve to be saved, what do we say? Amen? <laughs> no kidding. But the payment was paid in full. In full. In full. And that frees us to love him in return. Third thing is that know, those who know him do what Christ says. Here's the hook. Verses 3 to 6 says, if we want to know we know him, there's an obvious test. We keep his commandments. What does the word keep mean? It's often translated obey, but it's more than that. It's to guard or protect or grasp. It's to keep them, to, to hold on to, to, to cherish. It certainly carries the idea of obedience, but it's much more than that. It, it, it's to value or cling to. When we're in love, sometimes we say we hang on the person's every word, right? You ever heard that phrase? Everybody over 50 is nodding their head. Why do we hang on their every word? Because there's going to be a test? Because it reveals who they are. It's the expression of who they are, and we, we, we want to know them. It's the idea of expressed by David in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. It's as if to say your law, your word is a lifeline for me. It brings me life. <clears throat> because it explains to me who you are. And what John is saying is, if we say we know him, but his word doesn't own us, or we don't own it, we're lying. It's impossible. It can't be true. It just can't be true. And we're lying to ourselves, and we're lying to everyone else. After the first service, I was talking to a guy, and he said, man, when I first start coming to church, I made a decision. I wanted to know this. And he said, what I realized is that's not what I really wanted to know. What I wanted to know is him. But this is the path. I said, that'll preach. <laughs> because it expresses who he is. And, and John is saying, listen, if you say you know him or you say you love him, but this doesn't matter. If you never communicate, if you don't listen to what he has to say, who are you trying to kid? It's only you you're kidding. What I've realized this week is that he goes on to say, and by this we come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep, love, revere his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever who keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. The agape of God flourishes. It comes to fruition. It's made whole. It's perfected. It's matured. If what? We cherish his word. Cherish his word. That's the fertile soil for God's agape love to be perfected. One of the things I realized, I watched a Francis Chan video this week. Don't do that. 
Those are painful deals. And Francis Chan, as only he can, is leaving over, and he said, said this. If you don't love Jesus, please don't tell anybody about him because you'll reproduce who you are. And we don't need any more people who believe about Jesus but don't love Jesus. <laughs> That's when I flicked it off. But that thought has been haunting me. Do we love Jesus? Most of what I love, or most of my love, I realize is pretty self-centered, right? When I, when I love Linda and she ticks me off, it's really because she's not making me feel good about myself. So my love is selfish. I'm loving her because of how she makes me feel. I love my grandkids till they want to take the remote during Gonzaga games. Yeah, exactly. For sale. Three grandkids, one remote. Look at her. We love selfishly. And I think we love God because of what he can do for me. Right? I want to use God. Give me a better marriage. Give me a better job. Give me a better this. Oh, da, 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 da. Do I love God? 1 John 4.10, John goes on to say, you're going to recognize this verse. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know how I fall in love or grow in love with God? I focus on who he is and what he did. How can I not love God? This is amazing that he should take my place. This is unfailing love. And when we find that love, responding love happens. I don't have to make myself love God. Here in his love, that he loved us first. And then verse 6 says this, whoever says that he abides or lives in Christ ought to walk as he walked. The word ought means is indebted to, it's bound to, it's obligated to. It doesn't mean we should. It means we're indebted to walk as he walked. The term that we have already seen for walk is a description of live. Because of who he is and what he has done, we're obligated to live as he lived. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ shall glorify God in your body. If somehow, and I believe we have, in the church of the 21st century, we have given or been given the impression that Jesus wants to be a part of our lives. Look at me now. Look around. Make sure you're looking. If we have given the impression or gotten the impression that Jesus wants to be a part of our lives, I'm sorry, that's a lie. He doesn't want to be a part of our lives. He wants to be our lives. He came to die that we might experience his life because he sheds light on our lives. He gave his life so that we would lose ours and share in his. So here's the bottom line. I've been wrestling with this this week ever since I was watching Francis Chan. 
and read in 1 John. Do we love Jesus? Not do we love the things about him. Not do we love the idea that he probably died for us. Not do we love the idea that he might give us a better life. Not that stuff. We love all that kind of in the same way we love the idea of Santa Claus. Do we love Jesus? I mean the kind of love that consumes, takes over, that causes us to reorient our lives around it. Other things fade in comparison. You remember when you first met your spouse? What happened to your life, guys? Charlie, you are so fortunate that woman loves you. <laughs> Here's what happens to our lives. You know what? I remember when we were playing youth sports, and you know we were going into high school, and a kid skipped practice to walk his girlfriend home, and our coach just screamed him, "You have to choose between a girl and football." And he said it while we were all thinking it. Why do you think we're playing football? <laughs> this isn't that fun. So when we meet our spouse, everything goes. And I remember my mom, my mom, my the lady who birthed me said, why do you drive clear out there to see her? She lived way in the Spokane Valley, and I lived out by Albee Stadium. Why do you buy so much gas, which was 29 cents a gallon, and go clear out there and see her? And I remember, have you looked at her? <laughs> my mom said, not the way you do. My life went, and I was okay with that. Do we love Jesus enough to say, you can't have my life because what I want is you? And really nothing else matters that picking much. Do we love Jesus? Is his... Life being completed, perfected. Is his love flourishing in my life? C.S. Lewis said this, God doesn't just want people who obey a set of rules. He wants people of a particular sort who are in love with him. There are people who crave God's character because they love him. And I have to tell love is often just resting with. I was asked this week, some people are praying for me regularly and in my family, and I appreciate it. And they said, how can we pray for you? And, you know, I appreciate prayers for my knees and my back and my brain and all those things that don't work so well. I appreciate prayer for family. I appreciate prayer for the church. But you know what I... Came to the conclusion this week, if you want to pray for me, pray that I'm overwhelmed by God's love and I love him more. That's what I need. I need to love God. I need to fall in love with Jesus. I want to rest in his love. That's not the same as becoming complacent. 
It's experiencing it, living in it. And so when somebody, when something goes awry, when somebody attacks, when the enemy says, you're kind of an idiot and a scumbag, I can say, uh-huh. But that's not why I'm adopted as his child. The court case this week, it was so fun. The judge asked, you know, asked the whole family about, do you really want this little guy? And they asked one of the sons, they said, now I understand you share a bedroom with him. Are you really willing to give up your bed for the long term? And then they turned, they had us sitting in the jury box, you know, because it was a better place to see. And then they said, do any of you have anything to add? <laughs> and then after it's all said and done, it's all signed. They go up there and uh, this little guy sits on the judge's lap and he grabs the gavel. <laughs> and I don't know if you heard him. He whacks the gavel and he says, I'm A, and he says his last name. Bam! It's done. I'm like, it's the coolest moment. Uh, four. I don't know if he just liked the attention or he got the deal, but it was a great sermon illustration. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I'm going to pretend that this is a gavel. I'm a child of God. Done deal. And the rest is detail. And when we get that, we revel in it. And we automatically love in return. Do we love Lord, my answer is not enough. I pray that we as your people will revel in who you are and what you've done, not just theologically, but emotionally, spiritually. That at the core of who we are, we will understand it's a done deal. Because it's a done deal, we crave your because it's an expression of your character. I pray that we will become men and women who love you because of who you are and what you've done and rest in it. And we can't wait to do what you ask because what you ask is so good and based in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.